This is the show that pulls back the industry curtain. We're exploring pop culture, music icons, and food gods. It's the Jeremiah Show with Dr. D and Will Knox. Broadcasting from the HJL Hospitality and Evolve Studios in LA and KZSB AM 1290 and FM 96.9 Santa Barbara or somewhere from the road. And now, Mr. Restaurant, Will Knox. And I'm with restaurant royalty today. She's been involved in many facets of the restaurant business. Most widely known for her work as a prolific writer and an editor. I'm with Ruth Reichel. And I'm a personal fan of her delicious blog, Le Brief. Is that correct? Did I pronounce that? Yes. My my French is not the exactement. (laughs) That was good. That was good. I took four years, but I can't remember a thing of it. But Le Brief is her most recent blog and her most recent book is Save Me the Plums. But I got to tell you, Ruth, I am in awe of your talent as a winner of six James Beard Awards for your journalism, your magazine feature writing and your criticism. I'm a, I'm a little bit worried that I might be critiqued here today. But no worries. No welcome. worries. I, I appreciate you being on Mr. Restaurant with Will Knox. So, Ruth, let's get into it. Okay, where Mr. You, Restaurant. Where were you born, Ms. Uh, Granite, New York City. Granite yeah. Village. In the city. In the city. You're Grew up on urban, 10th Street. You're an urban person. Wow. Um, I am. Um, and what about your family? I'm going to get into this briefly, and that'll come back in later. Do you have a husband? I have a husband and a son. Okay. So now, how did you get your hankering for this world of food and restaurants? When did that first kind of come into your consciousness? Um, Well, you know, I, as I have written in my books, my mother was the world's worst cook. I mean, she really was. So the first chapter in my first book is about my mother inviting people to an engagement party for my brother and putting 26 of them in the hospital with food poisoning. So I started, you know, I pushed her away from the stove when I was very young. I mean, what was that menu that my mother's menu? Oh, read tender at the bone. It's in there. It's like, I mean, among my mother had mental issues, but um, I mean, come on. You know, compared to my mother, I feel enormously, very fortunately sane. So, um, so I mean, she, we didn't have refrigeration to do the kind of party she was doing. She invited 150 people and she got 
crab meat and, you know, didn't have enough place to refrigerate it. So she made the soup and put the crab meat in it. That wasn't really good. She was also very fond of doing things like making steak tartare with, you know, bargain ground meat that she found at the supermarket. Um, she, Down she, on Hester Street. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, now around the corner, actually, at Christides, but um, we're going to be um, dropping a lot of names here today that I don't know and the audience doesn't know, but keep dropping them. OK. Um, but anyway, um, I I started cooking when I was really young. And what happens when you cook when you're a little girl is that everybody thinks it's adorable. So even if it's terrible, people tell you what a great cook you are and you keep cooking and eventually you, you turn into a pretty good cook um, on top of that. My dad and I used to explore the city on weekends. My dad loved to walk. And so, you know, we he took me up to Yorkville. My dad was German and didn't come to the States till he was 26. So he would go up to Yorkville to sort of, you know, go home. Yorkville and was German? Yorkville was, was the German part of New York. Yeah. Um, there's very little of it left now. I think there are two shops still, you know, two German shops. But in those days, it was really totally German. And you you heard German on the street and all the stores were German. And so I sort of saw that my father went home when he went up to Yorkville, you know, that it was his way of going home. And then we expanded and we would go to um, the Marqueta, the, the Puerto Rican market. And we'd go down to the Lower East Side and we'd go to Little Italy. And so I, I sort of loved the food part of New York. And I loved sort of spending that time with my father. And my parents were, I, I was a, the child of a second marriage for both of them. And they were quite, my, my dad was 50 when I was born and my mom was 40. And um, they went out to eat a lot. And they took me with them. I mean, they, they weren't sort of typical 50s parents. And my father's office was above one of those little French restaurants that used to be all over New York, a place called the Dubonnet. And we ate there probably at least once a week. And I loved what happened with restaurants. You know, my mother, my parents were happy. They didn't fight when we were in a restaurant. They relaxed. And we had our waiter. And he always took me into the back, into the kitchen and, you know, showed me what they were making and introduced me to spices. And so and, and also my mother was enamored of Joe Baum, who you know who Joe Baum was, right? Yes. yes. Restaurants of the world. Restaurants yeah. And he did the Four Seasons, Windows on the World, the Forum of the Twelve Caesars. Um, he sort of real concept guy. He was a real and, and he he loved restaurants as theater. I mean, he redid the Rainbow Room um, and my mother was for one reason or another was really enthralled with him. And so we couldn't really afford to go to those restaurants. I mean, the you know, the Four Seasons was, restaurants, they were big time expensive restaurants, but we would go and have a drink and then we would go to the automat for dinner afterwards. You so, the experience. Yeah, just and, you know, my mother would, you know, we'd go to the Four Seasons and, you know, we'd sit in that incredible bar with, you know, the Lippold sculpture over the bar. And um, so I had this feeling of restaurants as um, 
places that you could go and get outside of your ordinary life. And were you theatrical in any way? No. It was like your mom was. She was. But I think because she was, I wasn't. And were you an only child? I have a half brother who's 13 years older than I am, and we never really lived in the same house. So you didn't really experience food, certainly. With my brother. Yeah. Yeah. And so was your mother German? No, my mother was my mother was from Cleveland, Cleveland. Okay, Mm -hmm. All right. Well, there's certainly a a different take than being in New York City, for sure. But Um, yeah, when you were when you were going to the Joe Baum restaurants, how old were you at the time? Oh, I mean, I think probably started going when I was eight. Um, You know, I would dress up and, you know, go with them. Um, You know, I think my mother figured it was cheaper than getting a babysitter. But it must have been a very sensual experience for you because you're visually seeing these big restaurants and these great accoutrements to the restaurants and the food and, and certainly the smells. And you didn't get behind the scenes. You didn't go in the kitchen, I would imagine. Well, only at the Dubonnet. I mean, I did. Max, our waiter, would take me, you know, so I think mostly just to, you know, give my parents some privacy. He would take me back into the kitchen. So I did there. And and then I started working in, you know, when I went to college. Um, I, I, I got a job shelving books in the library. In those days, the minimum wage was a dollar an hour. Where were you at school? University of Michigan. Got it. Smart kid. Um, well, I, I wanted to get as far away as they would let me go. (laughs) And that was as far as they would let me go. Um, but I, I got a job shelving books for a dollar an hour. So I'd work 20 hours and take home $20. And then I discovered waitressing and somebody opened a very fancy French restaurant in in Ann Arbor. And my boyfriend was working there and he said, you know, you should, you should come work there. And I got a job as a waitress and I would work a four hour shift and make $35 in tips. Big time. And that was like, you know, four hours, $35, 20 hours. It was a no brainer. I mean, I was a waitress then, you know, for years because it first it was fun. Um, That happened to be a really interesting restaurant. It was way ahead of its time for Ann Arbor. Why was it ahead of its time for Ann Arbor? Um, I mean, sadly, it went bust. But the guy who opened it had this dream. Um, He I mean, he opened with Limoges. With crystal, I mean, with you know, baccarat crystal. This was Ann Arbor, which had never seen a restaurant like this before. You know, it was he hired a chef from the Four Seasons. He hired the best grill man from a restaurant in Detroit. I mean, he uh, the woman who trained me was a French woman who had been a professional waitress in France, um, and so it was really an incredible place to learn about how restaurants run. So you you soaked that in. But were you writing at the time that you was in college? I was a freshman in college. No, no hankering to write at that moment. You didn't have any inspiration on that. You know, it never occurred to me. I mean, much as I loved food and loved restaurants, it never occurred to me that there would be a career in food for me. I mean, it just, you know, in the 60s, 
food wasn't part of American culture. Um, you know, you didn't go to college to be, you know, to work in a restaurant or to write about food. It just I, literally never crossed my mind that this would be a career path for me until after I got out of graduate school. Uh, my husband and I moved back to New York City. Were you a grad school in Michigan? Yeah, I, I got a master's in history of art at Michigan and, and thought I would you know, get a job in a museum when we moved to New York. But of course, all anybody wanted to know was how fast I could type. Uh, Rather misogynistic time then. Well, yeah. And, uh, museums were not they weren't doing very well in New York. I mean, this is like 1970 in New York. New York was really poor. It was it was, you know, it was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, we were living on the Lower East Side in very scary neighborhood. Um, and I had a job I hated. And all our friends would come and stay in our loft. And all I did was like cook these huge meals for all my friends all the time. And one day, one of my friends said, you know, you're such a good cook. You ought to write a cookbook. And my father was a book designer. I grew up in publishing. So I went to an editor that I liked and said, I'm thinking about writing a cookbook. You know, what should I do? And she said, oh, why don't you write, a, write an outline and write a sample chapter and show it to me and then I'll tell you what to do with it. And so I did. And she called me and she was at Holt Reinhardt and Winston and she said, we'll buy it. And they gave me a $10,000 advance, which was like huge, huge. Um, and it was the first time it ever occurred to me that I could actually do something with food and maybe make some money and be, be paid for something you loved, and be paid for something that I loved. And I loved writing that cookbook. And then living in New York was horrible. So we decided to move to Berkeley. And wait, 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 wait. Why from New York City to Berkeley? Because you're so liberal. You just think that, you know, I'm going to go to California. And if I go anywhere, it's not L.A., it's San Francisco, Berkeley. No, it, it wasn't quite like that. So um, my, my husband and I both got a summer job working at a glass blowing workshop in Seattle, north of Seattle. Glass blowing workshop. Glass blowing workshop. That's, that's and Doug's an artist. So um, and. His job was to help the students build their structures. Everybody built their own structures in those days. And my job was to help people cook meals. I mean, this was a it's now an, an institution, the Pilchup Glass Workshop. But in those days, it was just it was just starting. And it was just this space in, in this most beautiful place in the world. And um, so we went out there and on the way home, we stopped and we drove out there. And on the way home, we stopped and visited friends all along the West Coast. And we loved Berkeley and we had friends there. And they said, you know, why don't you you know, move to Berkeley and we'll all buy a house together and we can live together and set up, you know, a shop. And so we went back to New York and packed up our stuff and moved out to Berkeley. And this is Michael, your current husband. Oh, this is not my current husband. No, this is not my your current husband. husband. No. Your first husband. OK. Yes. All right. So then you move out to Berkeley and you're. This mama who loves food. 
And um, there was a collective restaurant starting up in the University Art Museum, and I became part of that collective. And it was great. You know, I mean, it was like everybody who worked there was an owner, so everybody did everything. And living in Berkeley in those days was really cheap. Uh, we didn't need a lot of money. Um, it was a wonderful time. Um, and then I started doing a little bit of writing, mostly about art. Um, and one of my editors, New West Magazine was just starting in the mid-70s in San Francisco. And one of my editors ate dinner in my restaurant a couple nights a week. And the restaurant was called? Was called The Swallow. Okay, that's a great name. <laughs> Works on many levels. <laughs> Works on many levels. And it really was, you know, people say I was a I wasn't. I mean, we were a bunch of overeducated people who loved to cook. None of us was professional, but we did everything from scratch. We baked our own bread. We I mean, you know, and this was a time when, you know, we had quiche on the menu and people would come in and say, what's a quiche? Right. I mean, you know, um, and but scratch, cooking, guess, scratch cooking was pretty novel, right? It was pretty novel. I mean, people didn't really do that much. But, you know, this is. This is Berkeley. You know, this is Berkeley in the early 70s. So think Chez Panisse, think the Cheeseboard Collective. I mean, it was, um, you know, we all knew each other. It was, you know, it was a small community of food people. And there was a lot of back and forth between all the restaurants. And we all had this idea of, you know, we'd all, you know, gone to Europe on $2 a day and, you know, had this notion of what, food should taste like, and it wasn't like what you got in most of America? I grew up in San Francisco, which was across the bay. And of course, we in San Francisco would think of Berkeley and Oakland as being in the provinces. So rarely would we venture across the bridge. Did you ever go the other direction? Did you ever experience Trader Vic's, which was really the culinary capital of San Francisco? Absolutely. I mean, I know I, I, you know, I well, when I became a restaurant critic, I was reviewing mostly restaurants in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, in Berkeley, you did, I mean, we went to San Francisco all the time. It's not like today when, you know, it's, it's the traffic is so bad that it can take you forever. Right. In those days, in 20 minutes, you were across the bridge. So, I mean, there were days when I would be back and forth from San Francisco to Berkeley a couple of times a day. Well, that's one reason BART was invented, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, because people could really know where they could get to in a relatively easy time frame and count on 20 minutes or 30 minutes. But, you know, certainly it's it's been a problem, you know, driving in L.A. and everywhere else in the United States, but, the, but, world, the world. But it really, you really feel it in the Bay Area. I mean, yeah. the difference between now and then when Very you know, living in living in Berkeley really felt like you could say I live in San Francisco and, you know, because you could be. We were all there all that. I mean, my my husband was working at the Exploratorium. And so he was over there, you know, every day building stuff. And um, it, it, in those days, it really felt like one, at least to me, to like one big community. I mean, a lot of our friends lived in San Francisco. We didn't think anything about you know, I was very fortunate to grow up there and be a child of the 60s in San Francisco. The summer of love was great. I remember I, I came out for the summer of love. My parents got divorced in the summer of love. That's how <laughs> loving that was. So how, did, 
how do you go from the swallow? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You were at the swallow and then you met a friend from new or you knew someone at new West. Uh, um, we're skipping around a little. Yeah. I, I, one of, so, you know, we had this big house with, it wasn't really a commune, but there were like 10 of us who lived in the house. And one of my roommates, girlfriends was writing for new West, but she wasn't, she wasn't really a writer. So I was ghostwriting her things. And then I started writing my own articles and one of the editors just, he came to the restaurant one night and said, you know, you're a much better writer than our restaurant critic and you can cook. Have you ever thought about being a restaurant critic? Wow. And I did not think, oh, this is my new career. What I thought was free food. I mean, we were poor. The idea that we were going to go to restaurants and somebody was going to pay for it. I mean, I went back to my house and said to all my roommates, we're going out to dinner. You know, it was so exciting. And I think I did it for six years before it hit me that maybe, I mean, I just was thinking this is what I was doing until my real life started. And, you know, I don't think it was until the, LA Times asked me to be their restaurant critic that it hit, hit me that maybe this was my real life. Well, now, were you working at New West and California Magazine? I, it, they were New West. They became one and the same. It became California Magazine. The Texas Monthly bought New West and changed its name to California Magazine. I see. I see. So then you, you get into this world of beginning to write about food but not thinking about criticism per se? Well, no, I was, I was, I was their restaurant critic. Okay, that was it. At first, I was the restaurant critic for San Francisco. And then when Texas Monthly bought it, they only wanted one person for the whole state. So I was, I was covering the whole state for California Magazine. But I was also writing big articles. Like, for instance, when Michael's opened in L.A., you know, I went to my editors and said, something really new is happening here. The chefs are all American. They're all college educated. They're all under 25 and they want to use American ingredients and have and have a wine list that's heavy in American wines. And that was such a revolutionary idea at the time that they said, go write that article. Did they send you to Santa Monica? Yeah, I spent I spent almost a year writing that going back and forth between Berkeley and Santa Monica, because Michael kept not having enough money to open. So he would, he would, you know, say he was going to open in a month and then everything would shut down while he went and found more money. Um, and, you know, we were Couldn't all the same. The art? Couldn't he sell some of the art that was on the walls? Um, now he could. He didn't. Now he could. He could have done it then, too, but he didn't. And he knew he'd find the money, you know. But, um, you know, I I spent so much time there that they forgot that I was a reporter. You know, did you have to go in any way incognito? No. In those days. it, It was so different in those days. I mean, there was this small group of us who really thought that American food should be better. There was no real line between the chefs and the critics. I mean, it was like we were all in it together. I mean, our mission was make Americans care about food, make them see why restaurants are important, make them discover their own communities through food. 
um, it was it was a very different time than it is now. Um, you know, it didn't seem like it was a hierarchy. It seemed like you were all working for the same cause, which was to really make the public more aware of a better a better food experience. Yes. I mean, it 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 felt you were part of a movement. We were part of a movement. And, you know, and so much so that when I went to Los Angeles, you know, I went as the restaurant critic and then they made me the food editor as well. And, you know, today that would be ridiculous, the notion that you could, you know, both. I mean, it was the biggest food section in the country. It was this huge food section. It was 60 pages every week. And now it's been reduced to nothing. It's coming back. It is. You have some advanced knowledge on that? I do. I do. It's going to come back. Maybe we'll talk about that after the break. I'm told we're going to break shortly from Dr. D, who's hiding behind whatever he does. You know. um, so the fact that you're a critic and an editor, that overlaps um, because as a critic, don't you really have to be incognito? You do, but. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, I felt like for me, everything changed when I went to New York. So like in L.A. In York, I and work for the New York Times. I went to the New York Times. It was suddenly very clear to me that I had to be incognito. I didn't feel that way in L.A. because I didn't feel like I had that much clout in L.A. All right, we're going to explore this. We're going to okay. take a break and we're going to be right back with Ruth Reichel. I'm Will Knox. And you're listening to Mr. Restaurant. And you can upload me even on YouTube and see the beautiful Ruth Reichel and not so beautiful Will Knox. So we'll be right back after this break. Thank you, Ruth, for being here. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure. sight and the sound and even the stink of it. I happen to like New York. Mr. Restaurant is a tasty new segment on The Jeremiah Show. Host Will Knox, renowned restaurant real estate specialist, serves up a fresh look at the restaurant business. On the menu, celebrity chefs, startups, operators, deal makers, designers, and those are just some of the appetizers. Look for all of Mr. Restaurant shows. Tell your smart speaker to play The Jeremiah Show, Mr. Restaurant. Hi, I'm Shadow Stevens. While I'm doing this and that and the other thing at the very same time, I'm having a great time on The Jeremiah Show, the greatest show in the history of the world. For the love of God, subscribe. No, seriously, subscribe. Welcome, Los Angeles. The Jeremiah Show is now on Radio Candy Radio. Discover a world of emotions, your digital radio. The Jeremiah Show airs 10 p.m. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. RadioCandyRadio.com. Hi, I'm Mariel Hemingway, and you're listening to The Jeremiah Show.
Welcome back to Mr. Restaurant. I'm Will Knox and I'm with royalty, Ruth Reichel. I refer to her as royalty because she is. She's just gilded with so much knowledge as a critic, as an editor. Ruth, I, again, I, I'm gushing because you're here. It's, it's a special treat really for me because I'm starting this show. You know, I had thought about doing this restaurant show for some time. I wanted to key in on not the cuisine so much of restaurants, but really the business of restaurants. And you've been behind the scenes, uh, not necessarily working as you started working in restaurants, but you you really have seen it, you know, kind of from a from afar, but you're in there as well. And and you've got an extraordinary life in restaurants, which I want to continue to talk about. So thank you really for being here. It's, it's really a pleasure. Uh, when we left off at the break, we were talking about L.A. and New York and you're getting your feet wet primarily as an editor and a critic and you were a hybrid and you were discussing what it really means to be a critic. And that's really what I want to explore you know, right now, you know, how, how did you gear up for that life? Because you have to be somewhat incognito, right? I've used that word, but you, you, oh, have, I, you ever I, use disguises? I, when I went to New York, I mean, I was famous for the fact that um, I wore disguises in New York because when I, so when, when the New York times came after me, I'd, I'd been at the LA times for what, 10 years. And um, I had watched restaurants change a lot, um, but it never felt to me like, I mean, it, L.A. is such a celebrity town that people care more, you know, what movie stars go to the restaurant than what the critic thinks. So I didn't ever feel like I had this, you know, life and death power over a restaurant. When I was on my way to New York, I sat on a plane next to a woman who said, I know who you are. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You have no idea who I am. And she said, oh, no, I, I I'm a waitress in a restaurant in New York. And I know that you're about to become the restaurant critic of The New York Times. And I said, how could you possibly know that that's me? And she said, because there's a big picture of you in the back of the restaurant with wanted written across the bottom and the owner will pay anyone $500 if they spot you in the restaurant. Wow. And I sat on a plane. I mean, I didn't never really crossed my mind that this was something. I mean, it, it suddenly hit me that in New York city, what the critic of the New York Times says is worth millions of dollars to a restaurant. And then, of course, they would want to know who you are. And so I was just thinking, like, what can I do? Because I do not want to be that person who the red carpet gets rolled out for. I need to tell my readers what's going to happen to them, not what happens to the restaurant critic of the New York Times. Um, and so I got off the plane and I called my mother's best friend who was an acting coach. And I said, where do I go to get a wig? And Claudia said to me, no, 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 no. You can't just get a wig. 
come on, I'm coming over. So she came over and she said, who do you want to be? And I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, if you're going to do this, do it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She said, who are you going to be? So I pulled my mother-in-law out of the air and I said, you know, I wanted to be her. It's like a very modest, lovely Midwestern woman um, who came to New York you know, once a year to go to restaurants. And so she made me really figure out the entire backstory of this woman. I, ha- I got a credit card in a fake name. Um, she then you know, took me to a wig maker, took me to a, a makeup person. Um, we did clothes and I turned into a woman named Molly Hollis, who was didn't in any way resemble me. And then Claudia and I went to Le Cirque with me as Molly. And we had the single worst experience you could have in a restaurant. I mean, is they didn't want these two old ladies there. Um, We weren't chic. They kept pretending they didn't have a reservation for us. They kept us waiting for 45 minutes. They then seated us in the smoking section, although we'd asked to be a non-smoking. Um, it was just a really horrible experience. And I went a few inhospitable. times. Totally inhospitable. And then for the last visit, I called my nephew who was working on Wall Street. And I said, make a reservation or two at Le Cirque in your name and, you know, we'll go. And I said, you know, see if you can get an eight o'clock reservation. And he called me back and said, no, I can only get like, you know, 10 o'clock. And I said, well, let's go at eight and see what happens. So the two of us go at eight and it's in his name, which is not my name. Not Molly Hollis. It's not Molly Hollis and it's not Ruth Reichel. And um we're standing there and all these people are grumbling about the fact that, you know, they had a reservation at 730 and it's eight o'clock and they haven't been seated yet. And there's a huge crowd milling around angrily because they haven't got their tables yet. And the owner, Sirio Maccioni, spots me. And of course, he's seen a picture of me. I'm not, it's, you know, I'm not wearing a disguise this time. And he spots me and he comes through the crowd and he parts everybody, you know, and he takes my hand and he leads me forward. And he says, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. Oh, my God. Wow. So Johnny and I sit down and now we have this four top for just the two of us. And they're dancing around and Sirio says, you know, can we make you a meal? And I, you know, like we get champagne and there's white truffles and black truffles and caviar. And and I say to Johnny, oh, yeah, I bet the king of Spain is waiting in the bar. Johnny turns around and he goes. That is the king of Spain. He's here to open the Picasso show. I saw him on TV last night. You won up the king of Spain. I won up the king of Spain. Um, And so I ended up writing the review just like that. This is what happens to Molly Hollis. And this is what happens to the critic of the New York Times. And the food was good both times. It wasn't like I had terrible food as Molly Hollis, but people don't go out to eat. They go out to be treated well. They go out to have a wonderful time. They don't go out to, you know, be made to feel small. Well, you go out to eat also because you can't get that food at home. I mean, you can't get it prepared like that at home, for sure. You're not going to eat white truffles at home, particularly, I would think, you know, most people. 
It's well, an now, experience. It's an experience. I mean, you go out for a lot of reasons, but you, at the point where they've humiliated you for an hour, it doesn't matter. They can give you mana from heaven and it's not going to taste the same. You know, I mean, it's, it is a whole package. And I think I learned a lot of that from going to these restaurants with my mother, who was like so taken with Joe Baum, you know, who understood that restaurants are theater. They're not just food. Well, I think, you know, Wolfgang Puck certainly brought that to the forefront when he opened Spago. And I must say, I was very fortunate. I did my very first restaurant real estate deal. I found Spago for Wolfgang and people were just amazed at the casualness of the restaurant. But it was married with the food and the view and the hospitality was great. And here was this young upstart chef formerly from Mamezon, which would have been a really local hang uh, with an unlisted number. But he kind of from the California standpoint, it seemed to have that experience of food, the experience of hospitality, because it was first rate. You you could be, you know, a movie star, five star movie star, or you could be, you know, like Will Knox, you know, and just walk in and, and be treated very nicely. I had a great table, I think, the first time I went in there, you know, and they didn't. But you found the space. Table. You weren't anonymous. Well, that's true. That's true. But nonetheless, it, it would. I, I have found that, you know, the greatest restaurants in the world are not necessarily the most expensive restaurants in the world. It's the way you're treated at that restaurant. You can go to Mel's Drive-In or a dive in Tribeca and, you know, they're cool and they're lovely and they treat you like you are royalty. Of course, you are royalty, but nonetheless, you know, that to me is really what sets a restaurant apart, that experience. I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm actually very proud of when I reviewed Spago for, I guess it was California magazine at that point. My last line was go now. Someday you'll gla- you'll be proud to say you knew it when. It's like Yogi Berra saying nobody goes there anymore because it's too busy. Right. Yeah. All right, Ruth, we're going to break right now. Dr. D's give me the high sign. We're going to come back and talk with Royalty, Ruth Reichel. It is Reichel, right? It's not Reichel. It's Reichel. Reichel. Because Reichel. some would say Reichel. I say I don't Reichel. care. It doesn't matter. I don't say it right either. I'm here with Ruth, who is my <laughs> new best friend. She wrote that in my book, actually, when she gave me, saved me the plums to my new best friend, Will Knox. Oh, boy, that was really scintillating that you wrote that to me. I was <laughs> I was I was touched. That was three years ago, just before covid, when we met in Ojai because Nancy Silverton was doing an event and you did a book signing there. And that's where you and I first met. Now we're here back again. Now, only I'm not in Ojai. I wish I were. <laughs> you're you're in upstate New York. I'm in upstate New York. I am. Well, that's not a bad place to be either. But we're going to talk more about your life and your times again with Ruth Reichel. And I'm Will Knox in the room with Mr. Restaurant. We'll be right back. The things I do to people I love shouldn't be allowed. Something about the buildings in Chelsea that kills me. There's something about the buildings in Chelsea that just kills me. 
Welcome, Somerset, England. The Jeremiah Show is now on Core Radio. Keep on rocking to the core. Core Radio, the Jeremiah Show, airs at 10 p.m. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday. Core Radio dot rocks. Hey there, I'm Caleb. I'm Becca. And I'm Joshua. And we are a girl named Tom. Go to girlnametom.com to hear more of our music, buy merchandise, and learn about our story. You're listening to The Jeremiah Show. You've been listening to The Jeremiah Show. I am Miles Zuniga from Fastball. Hey, this is Tim. And this is Christian. We're L1011. Hi, this is Ron Sexsmith on The Jeremiah Show. The Jeremiah Show. There's a lot to talk about with Ruth Reichel, and we're going to continue now with Mr. Restaurant. I'm Will Knox. Ruth, we were talking about the experience of being in a restaurant, but you had a really great experience for 10 years with Gourmet Magazine. Is that right? I did. I did. It so was a what, happened, what happened when you left the New York Times? Or were you wooed to Cy Newhouse and Connie Nast? I was, I was wooed. I mean, I never crossed my mind. I mean, when they called me, I, I thought they were looking for a new restaurant critic. It never occurred to me that they were actually going to offer me the magazine. Um, and, you know, it, it, was, it was the most amazing job because it was 1999 and you know, I had this real sense that American food was finally coming into the culture, that it was becoming part of popular culture, that people really cared, and that a food magazine ought to do so much more than just recipes and reviews, that, you know, there was a public out there really interested in everything that had to do with food and that we ought to be doing it. And... um I agreed to take the job so long as they would let me bring um, Lori Ochoa, who was married to Jonathan Gold um, and Jonathan to help me do it because we had redone the L.A. Times food section together. They left. They left L.A. and joined you in New York. I came to New York and. Um, and um, 
you know, we all three of us had this vision of what an Epicurean magazine could be. And um, we were really fortunate that, you know, when we got there, the staff of that magazine was so passionate about food and so knowledgeable that, you know, when I said, you know, what what do you think we should be doing? Their vision was the same. You know, we need to talk about what's happening on the land. We need to talk about what farmers are facing. We need to talk about, um, you know, we have to go beyond Europe. I mean, one of the things that I really felt strongly about when I moved to New York from L.A., um, L.A. was looking towards the Pacific and um, New York was still looking to Europe. And, you know, everything in New York, I mean, my predecessor at the New York Times had been very focused on French food. And it was shocking to people when I started writing about Japanese food and Korean restaurants and um, expanding that palette. And I felt like gourmet needed to do that, too. It really needed to like take a much bigger bite of the world. Um, and, you know, that we really needed to get, you know, new. We had, you know, an agent in New York said to me, book agent said to me, I can't believe it. All my people are saying, get me into gourmet. Um, because you're more journalistic now rather than gourmet. Because we were. Yeah. Right. You know, but, you know, Gino Diaz wrote for us, but Trillin wrote for us, Ann Pacha, James Smiley. I mean, we just sort of like said, my idea is that every great writer has a food piece in them and that it was our job to find find them. And, you know, Pat Conroy, I mean, we had wonderful writing in the magazine. I'm really proud of that. And it was not my idea to get David. I mean, I never thought that DFW would write for us. So when Jocelyn, who was his editor, said, you know, I think we should go after David Foster Wallace. And I was like, you know, you know, yeah, if you can get him, but I can't imagine he'll write for us. And it turns out he wanted to. But why? Why, why did he want to? Um, I think because he he knew that it was a different audience for him than the people he usually wrote for. And that, you know, he had heard that we were um, we were kind of open to almost anything that, you know, we we had an editing process that was I mean, I didn't tell people what to write, but he was he was a grammar nerd. He he was really granular on the changes. You know, I mean, he fought over every comma. I mean, I remember passing Jocelyn's office and hearing her shouting at him. I think that comma is very aggressive. Crazy. Um, and we ended up he and I ended up having I mean, there were a few things that he had in there that I said I couldn't live with. Um, Such as he was very admiring of PETA. And I was like, I'm not doing an ad for PETA. I'm sorry. I, it, it, it's got to go. Not P-E-I-T-A, but P-E-T-A, um, who were then targeting chefs about foie gras. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not. You know, we're not showing for them. Right. And um, he also had a reference to Mengele, you know, the horrible Nazi doctor. Yes. And I said, I, I think this has to come out. Um, and we fought over the title, um, and we originally wanted to call it to die for, <laughs> um, and, that doesn't um, smell a lot. 
he didn't he didn't I mean we, we were much happier with what we ended up with. But also just finding an article that he wanted to write was hard. I mean he didn't drink. We wanted to send him to a Scotch festival. He didn't drink. Um and then Jocelyn had this idea, you know, I think his mother's from Maine. What if we send him to the lobster festival? And he he agreed to do that, but I never in a million years thought that he would end up writing a piece that was basically about what lobsters feel when they go into the pot. I mean, it was, it's a very challenge. It's a fabulous piece, but it's very challenging. My wife will not let me bring home a living crab, shrimp, or lobster that we have to boil. She just said, I'm just not, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. Well, and you know, he went one farther and experiencing from the point of view of the lobster. Yeah. I mean, he he opens the piece by saying when you walk into the main lobster festival, there's this huge lobster pot with hundreds of lobsters boiling and you see it. And he said, it's as if you went to a barbecue festival and they drove the cattle into an arena and you watched them slaughter them. Oh, my gosh. That's tough. That's tough sledding. Uh, And, you know, and I thought... And it's very visual. And the piece is like he challenges you, you know, and he says, you know, is is it proper for us to kill sentient beings just for our gustatory pleasure? And I thought and he said, you know, I doubt very much. He wrote this. I very much doubt that the readers of Gourmet want to read this in their culinary monthly. And I was reading it and I thought, you're damn right. They don't. <laughs> you know. And I thought that. Thousands of people would write in and say, cancel my subscription. I don't buy gourmet for this. And in fact, the opposite happened. What we got were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters thanking us and saying, you know, it's the most thoughtful piece they'd ever read in a food publication. And, you know, a few people said, you know, if you have a lifetime subscription, I'll buy it because any magazine that gives us this kind of food for thought, I want to support so you really elevated the magazine from an Epicurean experience to much more of a journalistic one. Well, and, you know, it was very much, you know, thanks, thanks. Thanks to David Foster Wallace. You know, we started being really fearless. You know, if, if they could take that, they could take anything. So, you know, we started writing, you know, we did some muckraking stuff, too. I mean, we wrote about, you know, the tomato workers in Immokalee, Florida, who we're being we're virtual slaves. And we wrote about that. You know, another thing that, you know, Gourmet would never have challenged. They wouldn't have tackled that before we got there. But, you know, I think people want to know that those tomatoes that they were buying in this in the supermarket were, you know, being picked by people who were being chained into the places that they lived. So you're working in this new corporate milieu, which, of course, with the L.A. Times, New York Times, those are pretty corporate places, too. Not like communists. Right. So tell me about that. Working with Cy Newhouse, was it restrictive? Did you feel like you were going to lose your personal soul to a corporate entity? Condé Nast was not corporate in that way. I mean, Cy Newhouse was a strange man. No question. But why? Um, he was he was awkward. He was a billionaire. He was used to getting his own way on everything. But he genuinely believed that if you gave people a quality publication, they would pay for it. And his way of operating was 
um, he let you do what you did. I mean, there was very little overseeing of you. I mean, you went in and showed the honchos, the magazine, when it was too late for them to change anything. It was already on press when you showed them what, what you were doing. I mean, it was an extraordinary amount of freedom. And, you know, his, his modus operandi was, um, you know, do the best that you can. And at some point I'll fire you because I don't like it <laughs> um, until, and, and I always thought, well, you know, someday I'm going to get fired, but as long as I've got this freedom, I better take it. So they didn't bring you in prior. They, they absolutely gave you free reign and just Ruth, you go with your team, you go out and do the best you can do. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I have, James Truman was the editorial director and I had to show him the book, but it wasn't like he read everything. I would just show him we're doing this. You know, um, it, it, I don't think anybody will ever have that kind of freedom again. It, it, I was talking to Graydon Carter last week about it and we were both saying, you know, um, there will never be another institution like the old Condé Nast. He's got a great publication out now called Mail. Is that right? I think uh, it's, Airmail. It's Airmail. Airmail. Yeah. I'm getting the high sign from Dr. D that we got a break in about two minutes. But ostensibly, you, you had a wonderful experience. But then what happened? It, 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 did it just cease after 10 years? Or did you get a sense that uh, Gourmet was going to be sold? Or I never I, I never thought that. They would close Cormier, but they closed it. They, they didn't say we're going to do a new direction. Ruth, you're gone. No, they closed it. They closed it just like overnight. I mean, you know, I found out when everybody else did. Literally overnight. Yeah, literally overnight. It was like I was on tour for the, gourmet, the second gourmet cookbook and I was told to come back to New York on a weekend. And that Monday morning, we all went into the office and Cy came in and said, we're closing the magazine. And we were all just blown away, utterly stunned, bereft, um, in shock. I mean, there were people who had been working there for 30 years. And so Um, how did you get through it? I wrote a cookbook. Right. So you, you wrote a book later, but that particular moment in time with your staff, you're with these people for 10 years. A lot of these people, did you go out and just get drunk or what? Yeah, no. What, so, I mean, we were, we were in the middle of, you know, the kitchen was full of food. We were shooting. We had shot the December issue. It was on press. Um, we were working on the next issue. And I just said to everyone, you know, we all had to clean it. Everybody cleaned out their offices. And then I said, everybody come to my house and bring whatever food, you know, and then and the wine editor had like an office full of wine. And he was just said, like, we're taking all the wine. And we went to my house and um, stayed up all night drinking and crying and like a giant wake. It was a giant wake. And the next day I had to get on the plane and go back out and continue promoting the gourmet cookbook. Oh, my gosh. And at this time, you have your son and your second husband, and they're in tow. And how old is your son at this point? Nick was, um, he was in college. Um, How did he take it when you called him? um, He grew up with the magazine. Yeah, no, I mean, he was 10 when the mag when I went to the magazine Um, and, you know, he was philosophical about it because I had always said, look, someday I'm going to get fired. 
he was just couldn't like like everybody else couldn't believe that they hadn't fired me, that they closed the magazine. I mean, that was I mean, you can't imagine what it was like to be on book tour for that. I mean, people would get up in the middle and, and like give testimonials. I mean, tears running down their faces saying, you know, I learned to cook with that. And I mean, the magazine was, you know, almost 70 years old and it was a part of people's lives. So. I think it took all of us a long time to really understand that the magazine was dead. I mean, it was it felt like a murder. All right. Well, listen, on that light note, (laughs) we're going to take a break and we'll be right back with Ruth Reichel. I'm Will Knox and this is Mr. Restaurant. We'll be right back. Thanks, Ruth. Check out Jeremiah's top 10 new artist picks on Radio India Alliance each week. The Radio India Alliance is a chart service that allows indie recording artists an opportunity to have chart placements. We don't charge. We support RadioIndiaAlliance.com. Hi there, everybody. This is Ann H. Hey, everybody. I'm Art Alex Hutz from the band Everclear. My name's Danny Dreho. And you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. Jeremiah, you're loved, Holmes. you need help with your restaurant or hospitality business, see how we can help your business at hjlrestaurantadvisors.com. Hey, this is Jeff Stunk Baxter. Please open your heart and reach out to a veteran and let them know, number one, that they are loved and respected. You won't give up if they don't give up. And you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York Okay, once again, we're with Ruth Reichel And where we left off, we were in a wake But now we're going to sing, Ruth Because you were in this wake And you came out of it with just a plum. So tell me a little bit about what happened after that. 
and you know, we, the first year was really tough. And, um, you know, then it's like I, I did what I always do when I'm upset is I went into the kitchen. I, I just sort of cooked for a year. And then I wrote a book about called My Kitchen Year about how cooking after the end of the magazine really grounded me. Um, and then I wrote a novel and then I wrote a book about the end of gourmet. Well, hold on a second. So you were always with people and now you were very isolated, right? No. Writing? I mean, I was isolated, but, you know, I'm a very social person. Um, we have a lot of friends. I still cooked for a lot of people. Um, I mean, I wasn't in an office anymore, but, you know, I started life as a freelance writer. So it was like going back to the life I had had Roots. before. I mean, it, um, you know, I really missed the collaboration. I also got, you know, for three years, I was a judge on Top Chef Masters. And so that was like, you know, a month of very intensely being with other people. But that was television. That was a whole different medium. But I had done, you know, I did, we did four TV shows at Gourmet. And we that was? seasons. We did Gourmet's Diary of a Foodie and then Adventures with Ruth. So I was used to television. With Adventures with Ruth, who came up with that idea? My publisher, actually, it was one of the ways we tried to save the magazine. It was it was it was supported by um, American Airlines. And it was, you know, so they paid for it and then they bought all these ads in the magazine, which, of course, it never happened because the show didn't air until after they closed the magazine. Uh, but I got, to, I got to go to cooking schools all over the world with people with, you know, celebrities in tow. That was really fun. What was the premise of the show? Adventures with Ruth. Yeah, it was it was like I would go um, to a cooking school and learn some kind of cooking. Like, you know, I went to Laos. I went to Vietnam. Um, I went to Brazil. Um, I went to Venice um, and, you know, with um, and went with a great baker. And um, I went with Fran McDormand to Blackberry Farm. And oh my gosh, is that before Fran was Fran? Or was it just as Fran was becoming Fran? No, she had already Jesus done Fargo. She had already done. She had already done um, Fargo. I mean, so she, she had already. And she was. She is great. That episode is wonderful because she's she's so funny and she just made fun of me the whole time. She seems uh, like a very understated person. She is very understated, very direct, but probably uh, very opinionated. Yes, very opinionated, and great fun. And she happens to live around the corner from me in New York. So, you know, I, I would run into her at Fairway. And one day I just said, you know, I'm doing this show. You want to come with me? And she was, yeah. You've known a lot of people, a lot of big names. You don't flaunt them particularly. But is there anybody that really sticks out as a brand name celebrity that you really admire? Well, Wolf is one of them. I've spent a lot of time with Wolf. And I think there's nobody like him. I mean, you know, if you want to look at the history of what happened in food in the last 50 years, he was like ahead of all of us. Um, another one. Say one thing about Wolfgang Puck. You see him always still to this day working the restaurants. Absolutely. He's a hardworking guy. He is a hardworking guy. He's a great manager. He's a he's a terrific cook. He's um, he he takes lemons and makes them into lemonade like nobody I've ever seen. 
Is that instinctive? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think he's a genius. I mean, I, I think he's literally a genius. Um, I'll tell you another person I really admire in the restaurant business is Dan Barber. I mean, I think he has the most interesting food mind of anybody out there today. I mean, he's That's always Blue, Blue Hill Farms. Yeah, yeah, Stone Barns, Blue Hill and Stone Barns. Um, and you know, he's always three steps ahead of the rest of us. Uh, and Nancy Silverton, do you, do you feel that whole quality of the Dan Barbers and the Wolfgang Pucks? That's innate that they have that certain talent. I mean, Barber was in L.A. for a while, if I recall. Yeah, he worked for Nancy Man. until until she fired him. <laughs> um, and Nancy Silverton, who is you know, admittedly a very close friend, but you know, another, yeah, another person who. Um, has really shown she has she has forged a path for women. Um, you know, another one, you know, Tony Tipton Martin, who worked with us at Gourmet at um, the L.A. Times and um, really forged a path as one of the only black food writers in the 80s, you know, and um, again, sort of showed us how we ought to be doing things. I mean, the food world is, is filled with amazing people. Right? I should get, I should get Tony Tipton on this show. I you should, that, you that should. She's a wonderful. wonderful. Guest yeah. And you know, she's from LA. Well, then I'm going to look into that. I don't know her at all, but I certainly know Nancy because I've had Nancy as a client of mine for some years and she's a friend and she certainly is a forerunner. Suzanne going is a, as a client and a friend, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, women in the business and your experience being at the forefront of all this, seeing the chefs, the operators, Susan Feniger also is a, is a good friend. Um, I think it's a wonderful time that you lived through and you were really the forerunner to these later chef, these women who had to forge through all of this, you know, again, misogyny. It was a man's world. And you you really have seen the rise of the the chef owner operator, which was very unique. And and to this day, women stand out. And I think it's it's a great thing for women right now. It is. It it is. It is a great time time for women. It is. Um, And it's been a long time coming. Boy, we thought it was going to happen in the 80s and then we thought it was going to happen in the 90s and it's shameful that it's taken until now to really take hold but it lit, it finally is the arc of justice moves slowly <laughs> right to quote a well-known man uh ruth this has really been a a, a five-star experience for me certainly to have you on the show uh, it's a it's a word gourmet for me to have you on the show. And I, I really can't thank you enough. Well, it was very fun for me. Um, I hope to see you in person. So we, we, we like fun. Yes, we do like fun. I'm Will Knox and this is Mr. Restaurant. You've been listening to and you've been with Ruth Reichel today and we could spend more days and nights, which I would like to do. Don't tell your husband, uh, <laughs> but ostensibly. It's just a real pleasure. Thank you for being on Mr. Restaurant. And thank you, Mr. Restaurant fans out there in the world for being here today. Onward. Onward. See you.
Comedian Maz Chobrani, and you are listening to the Jeremiah Show. Listen, man. Did you like our soundtrack? Find all of our soundtracks on Spotify. The Jeremiah Show. Look for the black label. As always, a big thanks to Dr. D for making our voices come alive on the airwaves and to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Be sure to check out our very own Richard Dugan, a.k.a. Dr. D, Peabody Award-nominated radio show. Tell me your story every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The Jeremiah Show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and sound and engineer producer Richard Dr. D. Dugan and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. Communicate, listen more, and evolve. I'm up putting my guns in the ground I can't shoot them anymore That cold black cloud is coming down This is Miles Copeland. Yeah, I just had the honor of speaking to the Jeremiah Show. Who would have believed that little old me would have the opportunity to speak on such a prestigious show? And they even talked about my book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business. So it was a great pleasure to uh, be on that show, the Jeremiah Show. I love you. I love you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 